Hey, what's all the shouting about? Fantastic. Thank you guys for doing that this morning. Praise the Lord, right? Aren't you glad Jesus came? You guys did a great job. They did a good job, didn't they? You know, the crowds that were there that day, the crowd that was around Jesus was very loud. I think we all have kind of a mental picture of what it looked like that day, and you can Google pictures of uh, how this has been depicted in movies and reenactments, but what we need to understand is that it was loud and boisterous, and it caught people's attention. As... Um, Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives, and we have a picture uh, to show you of that uh, from Jerusalem looking toward the Mount of Olives. It's a very short distance. The only thing that separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And the people that were in Jerusalem that day would have seen and heard what was going on. As Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives from Bethphage, and he's riding this donkey, and he's surrounded by... Uh, crowds and crowds of people. There were many people at this point that were walking with them. And the noise was loud, and people were shouting in front of him and behind him. So anybody that would have been in Jerusalem uh, in that day, and it was packed because of Passover, anybody that was there would have heard and seen what was going on. Visually, it's very, uh, very short distance. And the way the topography is, the sound carries. So I want you to get that scene in your mind as Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives and he comes down the road and the crowd around him and the crowd is shouting that, that the city's attention was captured. And this is a significant moment in biblical history and it's a significant moment in Jesus' life. And he comes down through the valley, past the garden where he in several days is going to sweat blood because of the agony of having our sin placed on him. And then he walks up through what was then uh, the open golden gate. Now it's closed. It will be open again when Jesus comes back. And he walks right into the temple and he finds people selling doves and, and making the temple a place of commerce. We know that passage that he then drives them out uh, and, and cleanses his temple. This is the culmination of Jesus' ministry. This is, this is coming to the high point of what's going on. And now he's headed to the cross. And in just five days... He's going to be crucified at Golgotha. And he's going to bear all our sins. All the sins that have ever been committed and will ever be committed. And no one, not even the disciples, not even the men who had walked with him for three years, is aware of what's going on. In fact, the text in John says that it wasn't until after the resurrection that they recognized what had happened that day in Jerusalem, what, what it had meant that Jesus had come in on the donkey and, and entered Jerusalem this way. So, so for them, in this moment, as we capture Matthew 21 this morning, and that's our text, that, that in that moment, they really didn't quite get it. They didn't understand what was going on. They, they, they are probably thinking, and we can't assume, but, but let's kind of go based on the context and based on 
their past history of thought. They're probably thinking, this is wonderful. The crowd's favorable, and people are shouting praise to our Savior and our Master, and we're finally kind of getting recognized, and everything looks good, and the Pharisees are kind of getting put in their place, and Jesus is finally coming to Jerusalem after spending most of his time in Galilee, and this is great. Now, he's mentioned a couple odd things about being handed over and arrested and being crucified and rising again. We don't really understand all that. Uh, that, that seems kind of crazy talk right now because right now the crowds are wonderful and everybody's praising him, and, and this is great. See, in that moment, it, it kind of changed. What's happening, Jesus' ministry now makes a shift from healing and teaching and ministering and talking about what's going to happen now to it being realized and it taking place. And we want to look at the account this morning from Matthew 21 because Matthew is an eyewitness to this account. So he had not only been there when Jesus was teaching and, and healing people, but now he's walking alongside the donkey as Jesus rides it and the crowds are pressing in. And he writes about the significance of the moment and later he understands how Zechariah's prophecy was being fulfilled at this time about the king coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So let's read what he writes, and then we're going to kind of break apart the text and try to understand the different attitudes of the crowd and how that applies to us today. So look at Matthew chapter 21, start in verse 1. They'd approached Jerusalem and come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was written through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went, verse 6, and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, it's interesting that all four texts in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus instructs the disciples to go get the donkey while he's surrounded by the crowd. He's just come up from, Jerusalem, from Jericho, which is a very long, hot, barren, uphill climb. It's about uh, 28 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, and the land couldn't be more harsh. Even in a, in a bus, when I was there in an air-conditioned bus, you're kind of cringing because it's so hot and so barren. You see nothing, just brown, uh, beige landscape with no trees, no water, there's nothing. So Jesus and the crowd have just come up from Jericho, walking 28 miles uphill because it's about a 2,000-foot uh, elevation uh, height from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So they've just walked up, and he stops in Bethany overnight, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his friends, lived. And during that time, Mary has poured the perfume on his feet. You see that earlier in the text, and, and, and kind of anointed him in a preparation for his death and burial. 
Now when the morning comes, the crowds gather again because they know where he stayed and they come to see him. And people that are coming into Jerusalem for the Passover and, and Jerusalem uh, tripled in, in population for Passover week as people came to the feast. So, so many people are coming into Jerusalem. When they hear Jesus is in Bethany, they gather too. So, so by the time Jesus is on the donkey going down in Jerusalem, uh, hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands. I mean, that's how big the crowd could have been. Maybe tens of thousands of people are surrounding him as he's on this donkey. And he climbs on the donkey on top of their coats, and the crowd is throwing their coats in front of him on the ground, and, and, and they start to grab branches, and they start to wave them just like the kids did. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is, this is boisterous. This is not just a couple people, couple disciples, couple hangers on waving. This is, this is thousands of people. So people in Jerusalem are looking across the valley and they see this huge mass of people like often happened in Galilee when Jesus was teaching and the Bible says the multitudes followed him. Uh, the Bible's not using hyperbole, literally multitudes of people. So now you've got this huge mass of people coming down the Mount of Olives and right in the center of them is Jesus. Now, some of the people might have been caught up in the moment, but the vast majority knew who he was and they had an opinion about him. And this opinion was either reinforced or swayed by the events of the next 120 hours. Everybody knew who Jesus was. And the crowd in this text has always fascinated me because there's the sociology of being caught up in the moment and the dynamic of the social peer pressure to be part of this no matter what your own personal conviction was. And then you've got the seeming lack of awareness by everybody, of what Jesus' mission was or why he was emotional, why the John text says that he wept over Jerusalem. Uh, they, don't, they don't get what's going on. And, and then you've got this dramatic shift uh, from, from people shouting Hosanna and praise the Lord and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to five days later, the crowd of the whole city shouting crucify him. Very few, very few, of those that are praising him in this text in Matthew 21 are going to be there at the cross. Many will abandon him out of fear or because they don't believe that he's really the Savior. They don't really believe that he's the one who's dying to free them and free us from sin. Maybe, maybe they just don't want to be part of it. Maybe they're scared like the disciples were. To, if we follow him, what's it going to mean? So by the time Friday comes and Jesus has been betrayed, and he's been arrested, and he's been accused, and he's been denied, and he's been sentenced, and he's been beaten up like we can't even imagine. And by the time he's put on the cross, this crowd has dispersed. And there's almost nobody left. And the shouts have died down, and the movement has stopped, and the crowd's nowhere to be found. Now stop and let that sink in for a moment because I've studied this text for years and you've studied this text for years, but I've never been so impressed in my heart by that fact as I was this year. Where did everybody go? What were they thinking? 
Jerusalem was a small town. By the best estimates of Josephus, the historian, at that time, the population of Jerusalem was only 80,000 people. That's smaller than Racine. So you've only got 80,000 people. For Passover, it was a quarter of a million people. So you've got this little town, the whole city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was 425 acres. If you want perspective on that, that's four times the size of the mall property. So 425 acres, you've, you've got basically the area around the mall. That's the whole city of Jerusalem. And there are only a quarter of a million people there. It's not like Jesus is in Evanston or he's in Schaumburg and everything's happening in, in Chicago. Everything is compact. Everything's right there. Everything, everybody knows what's going on. His entry into Jerusalem has, has been viewed by everybody. It's been talked about everybody. When they're at the dinner table, they're talking about who he is and why he's there and what's going on and what was the crowd and what happened in the temple. Why did he go in and start, start turning over tables? What's that all about? See, Jesus had always and always will be been a polarizing figure and now is no different. So, so ask yourself, what happened to the crowd that was there? What, what takes them from passionate praise of God to disappearing? Or, or, or even worse, to being part of the crowd that stands there in Jerusalem before Pilate yelling, give us a murderer instead of this guy. Get, free, free the murderer. Free Barabbas. We want him to die. What took them from that to that? Some believed, few, but most walked away. And what does that teach us? Well, to understand that, we have to understand why people shout. Why do people shout? You may want to write some things down this morning because I think this will be helpful. I think the Holy Spirit's going to give us some truth here. What are the motivations behind people yelling what are the motivations behind people crying out? Because when we understand that, it gives us an insight into how the heart and mind drive conviction. And I believe the Holy Spirit's going to give us four thoughts on this this morning. Four reasons why people shout. Number one, people shout because they're seeking attention. People shout because they're seeking attention. Now that can be driven by two factors, either insecurity or the need to be noticed. And sometimes the two go hand in hand. Even though it seems counterintuitive, sometimes people will, will be loud and draw attention to themselves because they don't feel confident. And they think that being, by being overt, by, by being louder, that, that they will somehow fit in and be, uh, be accepted. While they're doing it, they know it's awkward and they know they're being kind of exposed. But the risk is worth it to try to integrate personally and socially with the rest of the crowd. See, insecurity is a very powerful emotion. And, and while a lot of people turn inward when they're insecure because it's safer, other people force themselves to be an extrovert to try to get attention and to try to gain some confidence. So people shout to get attention, A, because they're insecure, or B, because they just want to be noticed. They just want attention. They want people to look at them. They want to be seen as valuable and important. And, and there are a thousand variations of that. Let me give an example of it. I was sitting in my office the other day, and, and I had the windows closed, and I had some music on, and I heard a guy outside on Washington Avenue, right by the street, on his cell phone. He was at least 100 yards away, windows closed, music on, 
And he was talking so loudly that I could make out every word. Now, he wasn't angry. He wasn't upset. He, he wasn't really doing anything. I don't impugn any motive on the man. But he was talking in a way that literally the whole neighborhood could hear him. Now, sometimes we, we do things like this just to draw attention. I don't know if he was looking for attention, but he got my attention. So, so we'll be shouting, we'll be talking loudly, we'll be doing, we'll be doing something that, that causes people to look at us. Judas is a good example of this in Scripture, because when Mary anoints his feet, remember that he kind of yells out and says, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. We could have donated this money that she paid for that expensive perfume. We could have donated that to the cause. And by the way, I'm keeping the, the purse. And Mary, instead of pouring out that perfume, boy, what a waste that was. You should have given us the money, and I could have held it, and, and, and we could have had it. Not only was that a reminder that he held the cash, but it was drawing attention to his importance while trying to deflect away from the fact that in just a few hours he's going to deny Christ. He's going to betray Christ. See, we draw attention to ourselves because we want attention. Second, we shout to promote ourselves. We live in an era of shameless self-promotion. And our culture is getting louder and it's getting more demanding. Actors, athletes, musicians, they all set the standard for this. The bottom line is the elevation of self. And notice, uh, people, are, people are constantly, notice me, follow me on social media, look at my pictures, so on and so on. Everything is about self-promotion. And the culture has changed and adapted to the point that the next generations that are coming up, our kids and our grandkids, now are, are being raised with drastically unrealistic expectations of entitlement and being served and praised and, and not disciplined and given free reign because we're all about self-promotion. And, and you know who's caused this? Us. Because it started in the 60s and the 70s when culture shifted from serving and the greatest generation and all that stuff to now look at me, indulge me, care for me, uh, government take care of me. Everything in the 60s became about me. You remember what they called it? The what? Me generation. So if the kids and grandkids that we have are growing up that way, we're the ones that are responsible because we've taught them. So culture's been obsessed with self, and it's escalated for 50 years. And even religion has jumped on this philosophy from, from churches and pastors trying to now create franchises, and that's what the church is doing, creating franchises and movements that other people can copy to, to Islamic terrorists now making one gruesome video after another to promote their cause and draw new recruits. The Bible says that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And self-promotion is one of the ways that that truth bears itself out. So look back at the text. It's interesting that when Jesus comes, he comes in a humble way. He doesn't come saying, look at me. I am the Savior of mankind. I am the Son of God. I am the Savior of the earth. 
Everybody bow down before me. Everybody praise me. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, James, John, Andrew, you guys go gather a crowd because I'm about to make my entrance. You guys go stir up the people. Get hundreds, get tens of thousands of people. Use social media, use carrier pigeon. I don't care. Go get people because I am about to make my entrance. Get me a stallion. Get me some soldiers. I am coming in. And he doesn't make a show of himself. Hey, I'm coming now. Everybody, listen. I'm Jesus now. I'm the Son of God. Worship me. Exalt me. Start crying out. We want everybody over there at the temple to see that I'm coming. We want the Pharisees to know. We want the king to know. This is my moment. Do you see any of that in the text? Go get me a donkey. I I need to go to Jerusalem. And they put their coats on it, and he climbs on the donkey, and the people are throwing their coats in the road, and they're shouting, Hosanna. And Jesus basically says nothing until he comes over the hill and views Jerusalem, and he starts to weep. And he says, if only you had known what this moment means. If only you had known that in 40 years that whole city is going to be leveled. There won't be one stone sitting on top of another. And if only you had known how lost man is. That's why I'm here. He doesn't make a show of himself. Instead, he comes humbly. And he rides and he weeps. He sees the injustice of the fact that man is lost in his sin and doesn't have a desire to repent. That most of the people, if not 99% of those that are shouting, Hosanna, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, will be gone on Friday. In fact, they'll be cheering, kill him. And when he goes to the cross, those very same people that are waving palms will walk by and swear at him and spit on him and say, good, it's about time. If you're Savior, get down off the cross. I'm becoming more convinced even that when he goes into the temple, starting in verse 12, and he drives out the money changers, that he's not yelling. He goes in and he turns over the tables and he drives the commerce and the corruption out. And and I'm convinced that when he says, you've made my house a den of thieves, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, I've always pictured him for 50 years, I've pictured him yelling that. I'm convinced now that he doesn't. I'm convinced that his voice is calm because the John text says that he sat down and taught them. So he doesn't go in whipping and turning over and shouting, what are you doing? He walks in and he turns over, get out of the house. My house is a house of prayer. What are you doing? And he sits down and teaches the people. See, even in that moment, he's not drawing attention to himself. Look at the third thought. People shout to dismiss the truth. Turn over to Luke chapter 19 for a moment. See, truth doesn't have to be defended by yelling. In fact, those who speak truth, whether it's in spiritual defense or whether it's in the political discourse of our country, usually do so calmly because they're so confident of their conviction. Shouting is usually reserved for people who are trying to persuade people that they're right while uh, discounting logical and biblical truth. And we see evidence of that here in Luke chapter 19. Go down to verse 39. 
It says, after the crowd shouting, pick it up at verse 38, we see the extension of Matthew 21. It says in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, the Pharisees here are scolding Jesus for allowing the crowd's praise. And, and, and read the text carefully because they're not just saying, hey, hey, Jesus, can you ask them to stop? It's kind of loud. You know, Jesus, it would be better, be better if, if they don't yell. No, the word there said, which is weak in our human, uh, excuse me, our, our, not human language, our English language, the word said just kind of be like, well, they said, will you stop doing this? But the word in the Greek language means to call out and exhort. So, so infuse this into the text. Basically, they are shouting above the crowd, forgive me for doing this, saying, hey, tell them to stop it. Rebuke them. They should not be yelling for you. That's what the text means. This is not calm and passive, and please, would you ask them not to do this? They're scolding him. They're saying, knock it off. The word means to sharply admonish. Cut it out. Stop them. Rebuke them. Tell them to stop it. I, I'm, I'm yelling that because I want us to get what the text is, because we tend to have such a, such a kind of sterile view of the moment. This is a volatile, emotional moment. The crowds are cheering, Jesus is weeping, and the Pharisees are screaming. Why? Because they couldn't accept the truth. They couldn't accept that he was speaking the truth about man needing salvation and the fact that he's the only way of salvation. So they do what people often do in response to Jesus and the fact of their own sin. They show hostility and they reject him and they keep plotting. How are they going to kill him? See, truth only has two responses, acceptance or rejection. When truth is spoken, you either accept it or reject it. And as much as we want to believe it, there is zero middle ground. Truth polarizes and nothing else calls us to decision to accept or reject by the reality that we are all sinners, we are all separated from God, we are all condemned to eternal death because of our sin. And the only hope, the only way to be saved is to confess our sin and trust that Jesus Christ can forgive us. Now you can dismiss that or you can ignore that, but the fact is the Bible says it's appointed a man once to die and after that the judgment. And by God's grace, he has offered us forgiveness and exoneration for sin even though we don't deserve it. And when we trust Christ, when we put our confidence in Christ, he says as many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. So truth polarizes. The Pharisees have walked around, watched him, listened, accused, gotten into arguments, tried to trap him for three years. And now the moment comes when he's entering into Jerusalem and the crowds are shouting and shouting and shouting and the Pharisees are shouting back and saying, knock it off because they cannot accept the truth. Fourth reason, last reason why people shout. People shout because they need help. When you're in crisis, when there's no way of escape, when your life is in danger, when there's no way to help yourself, you don't sit there quietly and go, I hope somebody will help me. 
If you're hanging off a cliff by a branch and there's a valley below you and you know if you let go, you're going to die. You don't say, would somebody please help me? Hello, anybody there? You scream and you cry and you shout, help me, deliver me, save me. Look back at the text. That's what the people do here. They shout, Hosanna, which literally means save us now. Now after centuries of rebellion and resistance, over the last three years in the text of Scripture, people have finally started to cry out to the Lord and ask Him to save them. Bartimaeus sat and said, Jesus, have mercy on me. The demoniac cried out, Lord, help me. Uh, uh, the ten lepers said, save us, help us. See, all of them recognized that he was the Savior that we all need. The prophets had spoken about it and predicted it, and, and the angels had talked about it, uh, and now he's here. And the people finally, finally, finally are hungry for help and salvation. So look at what the crowd shouts. They shout one word, Hosanna, save us now. Now there are two possibilities of what they meant when they said that. One was political. Save us from Rome. Help us, deliver us, be our political deliverer. Be the one who saves us from Rome. See, Israel was tired of the Roman occupation. Remember, they had been scattered in the Old Testament to Assyria and Babylon in the diaspora with the dispersion of Israel. So now they weren't even completely back. They weren't back till 1948. So now they're slowly coming back and there's a remnant there and they're saying, we're tired of Rome being here. We're tired of the dominance of another nation. We want to be free so now the king's coming. Now our hope is coming. Now the one who's going to deliver us and bring us autonomy is here. Save us politically, Jesus. But this doesn't exactly look like a king, doesn't it? Riding on a donkey. How is this the political deliverer? This is Jesus of Nazareth. What good ever came from Nazareth? And he's never shown any propensity for battle. He's a son of David, but, but David was a warrior. This guy's walking around and teaching and healing, but he's never talked about taking on Rome. But some in the crowd are still thinking, well, he'll deliver us. He'll help us. This will be the answer to Rome. And when he doesn't do that, they say, well, he's no good. Let's kill him. The other option, the other cry for salvation, look at it, was for him to save them of their sin. To be a spiritual deliverer. They recognize in the text that he's sent from heaven. They recognize that he's the fulfillment of prophecy. They recognize that he's the son of David, which made him a king. They recognize that he fulfills the requirements of Messiah. And they've seen and heard him for three years. And there are some in the crowd that say, this is Messiah. This is the moment. Oh, we've waited for this. Here's the Savior. Even the donkey, Brad, would you put that picture up? Even the donkey showed evidence. The first picture here is the picture of what's called a Middle Eastern donkey. This would be the type of donkey that Jesus rode. Well, if you look at the second picture, you'll see what's on the back of the donkey. This would have been the view that Jesus had as he sat on the donkey. This is no coincidence. 
you can see the markings of the donkey are in the shape of a cross. And Jesus is riding this donkey coming into Jerusalem. And even the donkey is showing, hey guys, this is the Savior. Look at it. It's right here on my back. There's the cross. Jesus just told you if the donkey could talk like Balaam's donkey, right? Jesus just told you yesterday, I'm going to be betrayed and crucified and rise again. And you guys aren't listening. Even I, the donkey, get it. You guys don't get it. But the crowd is shouting, save us, save us, save us. But Jesus is a problem for many because they don't want to accept him as the only source of salvation. And he's coming and he's saying, I'm the one who will deliver you. And people need to ask at this point, we need to ask what the Philippian jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? Some of you this morning, I don't know all of you, some of you may need to ask that question. What do I have to do to be saved? Paul, I'm not sure of my salvation this morning. I'm not confident that I'm forgiven. Here's the answer. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Oh, this is what the Lord has come to do. And he is the only hope. He's the only salvation. He's the only one we can trust in. But some people don't want that. The rich young ruler, who's just two chapters before, he, he asks, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus tells him, and it says in the text that he goes away sad because he had many possessions, and the things that he held became more valuable to him than trusting and yielding to Christ. We see in the text that the Pharisees are stuck in their own righteousness, and, and that's an oxymoron, and, and they're standing there so arrogantly and so proudly looking at him going, how dare you communicate? How dare you preach to us? How dare you tell us that we're a brood of vipers? We're going to kill you because you have exposed us, and we don't want to be exposed. We don't need to be exposed. We're our own saviors. We're intelligent and confident, and people look up to us, and we have righteousness. You don't understand Jesus so they reject him this is the fallacy of man being willing to trust in something useless and to convince ourselves that we don't need a savior when God himself listen now God himself has come down to redeem us and forgive us and cleanse us and secure us forever it says in Matthew 21.10 that when the crowd saw this, when Jerusalem saw this, the whole city was stirred. But my question to myself that the Spirit put on my heart is, what were they stirred about? Were they passionate that Jesus had come to save? Or were they put off by the truth? What would you have been yelling in the crowd that day? Would you have been shouting worship and praise and joy that Jesus Christ was coming and was here to save us from our sin? Or, or would you be shouting for another reason? And, and let's ask of ourselves, I'll ask of myself, where would I have been on Friday? Where would I have been on Sunday? 
And when the news breaks that Jesus is alive, what would your reaction have been? What would your response have been? Where would you have been? Would you have raced to that news or sat back skeptically or said, ah, come on, Jesus can't rise from the dead. See, we have to ask, I'm, I'm done. We have to ask, what is the passion of our heart this morning? Do we love the Lord? Are we full of gratitude for what he's done? Are we overwhelmed that he's completely forgiven us forever? Are are we moving forward, not wavering, not turning back, totally sold out for Christ, that to me to live, as we've studied in Philippians, to me to live is Christ? Or is our love directed elsewhere? You know, there's so many other options. So many other things that can distract us. So many tangents that we can take other than trusting in Christ. But I want to tell you this morning, every single one of them falls short. The opposite of love and passion is dullness. And the Spirit of God is asking every single one of us this morning, including me, are you spiritually dull or do you love me? See, the enemy has made so much headway in making us passionless and dull and saying, you don't need to trust Christ. You don't need to live for Christ. You don't need to serve Christ. You've got other circumstances and other people and the world's calling you and that's more important. And you may cry out in church and say, praise the Lord. But listen, by Friday, it doesn't matter. Are we going to be there Sunday Praising the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Are we going to be there Friday as he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this remembrance. And are we going to understand, yes, Lord, that's what you're doing. You're sacrificing for me. And then are we going to be there Sunday? I'm not talking about at church. I'm talking about with our lives. Waiting at the tomb. He said he was coming back. He said he was going to rise again. He said he was going to defeat sin and death. I'm going to be there. And as the stone is blown open and the soldiers fall down like dead people, are we going to be there saying, praise you, Lord? What's our passion this morning? Our hearts divided? Our minds distracted? Or are we in love with the Lord? Listen, this is a week of victory. This is a week of victory. This is the week that we celebrate everything that we believe in. And if you don't believe in it this morning and you've never trusted Christ, I want to tell you right now, this is true. This is true. What other option is there? Let's just think through it logically for a minute. What other option is there? We have two options. Either God redeemed us or we save ourselves. There is no other option. And if we can save ourselves, my question would be, how are you doing with that? Because I don't know about you, but I'm a dirty, filthy sinner. And there is no way I can look at my life and say, I have done enough to satisfy the perfect holiness of God that when I stand before God, he will say, yeah, Paul Rhodes, you've done really, really well. You're not perfect, but you know what? I'll make an exception. Or do I have to stand before God and say, I am a dirty filthy sinner, but you chose to deliver me. 
You chose to sacrifice for me. You chose to save me. You chose to love me and show mercy to me when I didn't deserve it and I'll never deserve it. But I praise you for sending Jesus to die and rise again to deliver me. Lord, that's my only hope. And God says, you're right, it is. And I'll welcome you. Those are the options. Don't be fooled by the world that there's another option. Those are the two options. What is our love for the Lord this morning? Jesus comes riding on the donkey with the picture of the cross and the crowd saying, save us. And he's weeping, saying, that's exactly what I've come to do. Praise his name.